Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Sarah McMahon. Sarah has worked in the field of eating disorders for approximately 15 years, supporting hundreds of people to achieve recovery. Sarah embraces best practice therapy and works collaboratively with clients and their support systems, including families and other health professionals. Sarah appreciates the complexity of eating and body image issues and also treats the many comorbid challenges that typically present simultaneously, including depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, relationship breakdown and complex trauma. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Now, we were just looking at each other on the screen there. I've got to say, you look great. Have you lost weight? Are you kidding? Look how fat my stomach is. What's wrong with your stomach? It is so fat. Oh, please. You have no fat. I do. Look at this. Oh, my God. There is nothing there. And if you think you are fat, then I must be huge. So for anyone out there listening, does this sound familiar? Today, Sarah and I are going to be talking about fat talking. So before we dive in, if you're willing, Sarah, would you just share a little bit about yourself and what led you to working with disordered eating, weight and body image concerns and I guess building your practice body matters? Absolutely. To be honest, I wouldn't be doing the work that I do if I didn't have personal experience with an eating disorder. So that was something that I experienced in my late teens and I guess compared to most people, is relatively short and relatively sort of uncomplicated. And thankfully for me, it also occurred at a time of my life where I was able to make some decisions in terms of what I wanted to do professionally. And that was ultimately to dedicate my professional life to working in this space. And, and the rest very much is history. But that experience, I guess, it wasn't just my own experience. It was really everything that I was exposed to through that in terms of other people with eating and body image issues, the difficulty it was in terms of accessing good treatment. You know, this is Mm. sort of over 20 years ago. And I know things are still not perfect now, but I, I do like to think that they're a little bit better in the eating disorder space. And I guess other things that I was challenged by in terms of support for families or lack of support by fam- for families, mm-hmm. as well as finding therapists and clinicians who are appropriately balanced in terms of being firm and gentle simultaneously. We actually met, I just moved back from London and I was doing some volunteering through Eating Disorder Foundation. Yes. And I've got to say, and I, don't, I think I might have told you this over coffee, but you completely changed the way that I viewed myself because you told me about health at every size. At that stage, it was very much in its infancy in Australia, health at every size. It was, it was. And, and similar to you, it was revolutionary for me. I felt like it was the missing piece of the puzzle for me. And absolutely for my clients, it sort of bridged various worlds together in a way that made sense. You were actually running it. I was one of the trainees. You were running the training Mm. there. And I wouldn't be surprised if I actually made a fat talk comment, even though I'd been recovered from bulimia for some time. 
And you said to me, oh, have you heard of health at every size? And I was like, no, what is that? And it was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But why would someone want to do that? And then the more I looked into it, the more I was like, okay, this makes sense. But I, I think we might come to that a little bit later. So Fantastic. Well, thank you for telling me that, um, Jody. That's really wonderful i'm a bit older than you and i was i remember thinking i was quite shocked like she's so young and she's so wise (laughs) oh thank you so look i feel like health at every size for me was very much a case of the right place at the right time in terms Mm. of being exposed to it and at that point in time there was so much backlash in australia except for the fact that i think for people particularly with lived experience it just made so much sense Mm. And I'm just so thrilled that now it's really mainstream content in eating disorder thought now in terms of recovery. Yeah, absolutely. So look, we started off doing a little bit of a role play there. We were fat talking to each other and we can't go anywhere without being bombarded by fat weight and diet talk. And, you know, I notice even sitting at the dinner table out at a restaurant with super smart, creative, beautiful women, and the conversation still somehow comes back to fat weight and dieting. And I've got some stats here that I'm going to read out for the listeners. So in the Tri Delta Fat Talk campaign, 54% of women said that they would rather be hit by a truck than to be fat. 81% of 10 year olds are afraid of being fat. The average age that girls start to diet is eight. 57% of women withdraw from life-engaging activities because they feel uncomfortable in their bodies. In the US, over 10 million women have eating disorders. Between 1.25 and 3.4 million people in the UK are affected by an eating disorder. Approximately 4% of the Australian population suffer with eating disorders and 47% of these have binge eating disorder 12% bulimia, 3% anorexia, and 38% have other eating disorders. And that's information by the Butterfly Foundation. So according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, over 2.3 million Australians aged 15 years and over were on a diet. And to no one's surprise, the ABS states that females were overrepresented in this group. Dr. Timothy Caulfield says, by the time a woman is 45, she will have tried 61 diets. So on your Body Matters blog about fat talking, it states that 93% of women engage in fat talk. What is going on? They're fantastic statistics that you've just read through, Jodie, in terms of really highlighting the extent of this problem, not just locally, but internationally. Mm. And I think when you hear those statistics, it's absolutely no surprise that 93% of people are engaging in fat talk because as women, we are constantly consumed and bombarded with ideas about ourselves not being good enough, not being thin enough, and uh, where we're subject to very significant marketing efforts by the dieting industry, which now unfortunately permeates um, so many aspects of, or so many industries. We've got the the medical industry, the health industry, the beauty industry, the fashion industry, you know, all of these industries and so many more are very much impacted by the dieting industry. And obviously with the more people have become online and um, I mean, that's part of day-to-day life now, obviously the easier it is to spread 
those kind of things. And I was saying to Fiona Sutherland when I interviewed her back in, in my day in the 80s when I was dieting, you had to actually go to the bookshop, buy a diet book, and you'd kind of wait for the new diet book to come out and then buy that and then come home. You didn't, there was no internet then. So it's become more prevalent because of the spread of online, I guess, too. That's right. And I think the other thing is, um, you know, those points in times you might have had someone who maybe had engaged in some sort of research or had some sort of credibility, not not saying that the diet was credible, but I think yeah. unfortunately now we're living in an age where everyone is a health expert and everyone's a dieting expert, especially mm. if they're thin. Mm. And it doesn't matter what sort of unhealthy weight loss practices that person might be engaging in or if they're just genetically they've been born to exist in a thin body Mm -hmm. um, but that becomes the credibility the only credibility that I think we look for for now when it comes to who's got credible information about dieting yeah that's right so for our listeners so I mean I know we've sort of given an example of fat talk but what exactly is it so fat talk diet talk you know all of these things are talking about basically having the essence of the conversation is being governed by fat or dieting so there's there's the the idea that thinness is desirable and thinness is achievable for anybody and that infiltrates everything it's one of those things that doesn't necessarily mean need to be talking about a commercial diet Mm. um, that somebody's going on so it doesn't need to be someone talking about weight watchers or jenny craig or um, optifast or or something like that It, it can be a lot more subtle than that it can include orthorexic tendencies in terms of just being disguised as health talk mm. as well where where someone might be talking about changes that they've made to their eating for any number of reasons but ultimately the goal behind it is weight loss yeah absolutely and I you know I really wanted you to talk about orthorexia as well because and even things like mindful eating and stuff like that I'm noticing that a lot of diets are being kind of flying under the radar under these other sort of being healthy eating mindfully but that the goal is actually still to get rid of fat and to lose weight absolutely and it's very dangerous it's the same as diets being marketed as wellness campaigns that really sort of hijacks really important messages and dilutes and contaminates them so where does it stem from i mean we're starting to talk about that already aren't we from the i'm hearing the diet industry but you know, from your perspective? Yeah, look, I think the diet industry is huge. But these days, unfortunately, we're living in a society, like I was saying a few minutes ago, it's commercial diets. Yes, they're they're still around very much. But there's so many diets these days which actually have no commercial basis towards them Mm -hmm. that there's no one necessarily profiteering from them. And I think, unfortunately, our culture has been indoctrinated with the idea that thinness is desirable and there's so many other people and things that profit from from that so where things initiated from where they're instigated from and, and then is one matter but then I think we live in a in a culture where there's so much maintaining behavior that perpetuates mm. the idea that thinness is everything so why do we fat talk well I think the thing that's interesting is about fat talk is when we engage in it we don't necessarily realize just how toxic and damaging what we're doing actually is it's sort of part of the everyday lexicon for a woman and I think even for men mm. um, that we shame our bodies and um, you know I think we, we sort of feel that there's something that's normalizing about it and it's normalizing to other people but it's also kind of normalizing to ourselves that 
that we don't like our body, that sort of sense of normative discontent that most people experience some degrees of body shame. Mm. I think most people can identify with that to some extent. So I I think when we engage in fat talk, we really have no idea just how damaging it is for us as well as the people around us because it's kind of a bit like a a wolf mask in sheep's clothing that it Mm. looks as though it's perfectly innocent, uh, but in actual fact the ramifications for us and the people around us can be really devastating. Mm. Ultimately, it perpetuates body shame. And we know research again and again has demonstrated that when we engage in fat talk, we don't feel any better about ourselves and neither do the people we are talking to. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking too, and it's something I've said for quite some time, fat talking really did used to be like in the domain of eating disorders proper. You know, if I look back to the 80s when I had an eating disorder and then in my treatment in the early 90s and mid 90s, but the behaviours and the talk and the language was very much, and look, chronic dieters have always kind of used it, which I would class as disordered eating anyway. But I just noticed over the last sort of 10 to 15 years, it's really crept its way into everyday society like it's it's just so toxic whereas before it was you know severe sort of fat talking but was really more you'd hear it in the therapy room with people with eating issues absolutely and a great example of what you're talking about was that a few years ago me and a number of colleagues internationally from a group called endangered bodies Mm -hmm. engaged in advocacy around facebook using well face facebook actually introduced fat as an emoticon so oh i remember yeah yeah feeling fat sorry feeling happy feeling sad and feeling fat and Mm. you know at the time we argued and it was you know it's it's actually quite a big campaign internationally and very difficult to get it removed which thankfully ultimately did happen but arguing that exactly the point that you're making that it's it's actually eating disorder language and Mm. that using that and facebook allowing fat to be used as an emoticon was really normalizing something that is pathological Well, it's not even true anyway. I've read an article once, I can't remember which one it was, but I've got in there that the founder of Psychosynthesis, Roberto Acijoli, he says that when we say, I am fat, it's psychologically, grammatically incorrect. And we would say the same about, I feel fat. And look, I I know in my Carolyn Coston training, we work with that with people, but what we know is that fat is not a feeling. And so to have fat as a feeling on Facebook, normalising that is not even grammatically correct anyway, apart from all the other damage that it does. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with you. It's just so important that we keep on top of that because, I mean, this is something I hear every day in my office and I'm sure you do too, Jodie, that that since I'm feeling fat, you know, for me that's really a, a warning sign for other sorts of painful or uncomfortable feelings that someone might be having and usually they're the extent someone identifies with feeling fat becomes the litmus test really for and for other elements of their life until such a time that that person can learn to replace that idea, that feeling. Because often people, for people to describe feeling fat, it's quite a physical feeling that they might have. So until someone reaches such a time that they can really identify that that's actually the eating disorder talking and as you say, fat isn't a feeling, there's actually something else that they're feeling that has been replaced by this sort of global statement, I'm feeling fat. Those sort of reasons for fat talk, but is there any, why else might a group of women be sitting there fat talking with each other? Well, aside from the fact that there's social connection associated with it, I think there's this idea, particularly in Australia, that no one really wants to be the one that says anything different to that. No one, to, for <laughs> yeah. someone to say, actually, I feel 
beautiful or I feel mm. attractive today. That's basically unheard of. And I, I can't comment on other cultures because I've only ever lived in Australia myself. But certainly that would be social suicide uh, to say anything else. <laughs> even, <laughs> so you I think say, to, even you saying that to me now as a therapist, I'm mm. thinking... Who would ever say that? I feel beautiful yeah. today. I mean, that would, yeah. when you said it's social suicide, it's like you're right. I mean, imagine a group of women sitting there, and some everyone's going, "Oh, I look fat. I look fat. Oh, I feel really beautiful today." <laughs> it's like mm. I don't think I have ever heard that come out of someone's mouth. Which is a shame, isn't it? You know, it's yeah. it's a shame we're kind of we're almost conditioned to cringe if someone said something like that. We would be shocked. Because I'm the same, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. And like it's such a, I think it's such a tragedy. Mm. I think it's, it's fantastic these days. Most women can admit, actually, I'm quite intelligent, I'm creative. Well, there's, there's various attributes that we might, positive attributes we might be able to identify with ourselves. But that's certainly, you know, if anyone ever did believe that they were beautiful, which I hope people do, and I mean, when I talk about beauty as well, you know, I, I think that's the discussion about body image being focused on beauty is another mm. issue entirely, but just a simple descriptive term that that's still something that's unheard of. Yeah, I was going to say, as you were saying that, because obviously on the internet, there's a lot of stuff around not telling our daughters that they're beautiful. And I'm anti that. I've got to say, I very much believe it is okay to say that someone is beautiful as part of a whole package of other amazing things about them, not just their beauty. But I know that some people don't comment on that at all. Do you have an opinion on that or? No, I agree with you, Jodie. Like, you know, I think if someone, if a child is never told they're beautiful, then, mm. you know, then that's, um, that will in itself confuse that child. Yeah, but it's, it's yeah. keeping that comments around beauty and in, in perspective and in balance with other things. Yeah. If it's never mentioned, then that's dangerous, I think. But at, at the same time, it's, and it's not even just the comments or the affirmations about the child's appearance. It's so much broader than that in terms mm. of the way that conceptualised within the family and within the, the mm. environment that young person is raised. And I, I think I love the work of Beauty Redefined in terms of, you know, ultimately perhaps it's it's actually sort of changing the conversation so that it's actually not about beauty it's just beauty is not the focus or the emphasis yeah the other comment which i think you perhaps would un understand and appreciate as well mm -hmm. is the idea that fat is also a moral term mm -hmm. that activists have worked really tirelessly to reclaim that as a descriptive term but it's still for children it's it's i think still probably one of the worst insults that a child can give another child and a, I think that highlights the fact that there's that moral association with fatness. Mm, yeah, that it equals bad, fat is bad. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we still have a long way to go in terms of discriminating against people of different body shapes and sizes. Mm. Well, all the health things that are, come from the Department of Health are all fat shaming. Yes, still now, in spite of the research that, that shame has never, ever motivated anyone towards mm. behavioural change and also always pathologising the individual rather than taking seriously, you know, if fat was a terrible thing, which, of course, I don't think it is, but mm. if it was, then stop blaming the individual and start making changes from a public health perspective, health perspective. in terms of yeah, yeah. yeah access to safe exercise and ways to move our body, mm. access to healthy food, so that we can trust that if people are engaging in health-giving behaviour and they're sitting where their body weight should fall. So tell me, from your perspective, what's the impact when, I mean, it could be the individual fat talking or just as a society, how we fat talk, the message that is sent on, you know, there was that ad in London around being beach body ready. I mean, that's fat talking in a different way. So what are the consequences to people who fat talk? 
Well, I think the consequences are multidimensional. I think from an individual perspective, it reinforces body shame and the idea that someone needs to exist in a thin body to be acceptable as a human being. But I think then if we look at other domains, what's happening in these conversations amongst friends, these casual conversations, then that has that ripple effect in terms of societal values and even, I'd go as far as saying, attitudes from a government perspective. Mm. So we really need to be changing these conversations and challenging these conversations on an individual level. I mean, hopefully they're being challenged on other levels as well, but, you know, that that's where where change has to happen. And I think that's the same with any sort of advocacy. We need a bottom-up and top-down approach. And if one of those elements is failing, then at least there's going to be a ripple effect from the one that's working. Actually, I just wanted to bring up, because I don't think I've spoken to anyone else about this since it happened, but we took the kids to the dentist last week and it's a... um, I won't, I won't name and shame, but um, I think it's all government sort of places where um, they've got a public sort of health message. It had something yeah. about weighing October or November or something. So we've walked through the door to the dentist and this has never happened before. And Reggie, our lovely dentist said, oh, just come in here so I can weigh you both to the kids. And I said to him, why are you weighing the kids? We're at the dentist. And he said, oh, the government have told us that we need to weigh everyone. Gosh. Yeah. And I said to him later on, he was doing the kids' teeth, and then I said to he, he actually stopped and he said, he said, why did you get so upset about me weighing kids? And I said, because firstly we're here for their teeth and they don't need to be weighed to have, unless you're going to put them under anaesthetic or something, they don't need to be weighed. And um, he said, oh, what do you think about BMI? And then I was off. <laughs> and he said he was he's a little bit sort of chubby and he said to me do you know every time I go to the doctor they just keep telling me to lose weight lose weight lose weight in the end he said do you mind if I put on your form client refused to be weighed I said perfect (laughs) right right exactly fantastic yeah he was great and the fact that he engaged with me about that I just I just loved but I think because he was you know in a slightly bigger body I think he get you know was getting it every time he was going to the doctor as well so I couldn't actually believe it. And then there was posters everywhere around weighing. I thought, what is going on anyway? It's hard to fathom, isn't it? You know, it's, if, if you're so, sound so archaic that something like that would happen at the dentist these days, it's sort of, I think for me, because I'm so much of my time, you know, perhaps this is progressive thought, you know, but the people that I talk to now, I, I mean, I generally don't engage in conversations now that it's, it's quite shocking to me that this is still sort of mainstream. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, look, anyone struggling with this, and I'm sure almost every woman out there listening probably does. I even see therapists in therapy groups, fat talking, and, you know, especially over this COVID lockdown period, making negative comments about their body, you know, having put on weight and eating too many carbs and all that kind of stuff. What steps do they need to take to start to heal from this? I think the first thing is recognizing fat talk is dangerous. You know, at the moment, that's hard to do when uh, we're surrounded by it and bombarded by it. And then I think the second thing is to be able to stop those conversations in their tracks. So having a a phrase or a a pre-identified way of managing situations when fat talk arises is also really important. So your fat talk, when people are talking about dieting, just like a simple and, and easy one, I think is just to say, 
hey, guys, this is pretty boring. I'd prefer to be talking about something else. I don't know about you guys, but, you know, can we change the subject? Something along those lines. But also being able to recognise fat talk when it's occurring. And an example that I have, despite what I just said about generally not, not mixing with people who are engaging in, mm. in this kind of um, thing, I have got friends who've known me since I was a teenager and, and then I've got newer friends from when I've had children. And it's interesting that I do have some friends from more recent years who will, when I see them, they will say to me, you know, supposedly as a compliment, wow, Sarah, you've lost weight, which yeah. is really to me quite insulting because obviously there's an assumption then that there's a problem with my weight. Secondly, that I want to change my weight. Yeah. You know, thirdly, that I'm going to effort to change my weight. And I guess it's sort of, I, I feel like it really undermines everything I've committed my life to, towards mm-hmm. doing. So when that happens, it really still takes me by surprise because it doesn't happen that often now, thankfully for me, because I think most people wouldn't dare to make that sort of comment who know, know me well, mm. but it definitely about having some pre-prepared lines that you can say to manage fat talk, because there's, I think, again, it's you can guarantee that you will find yourself in situations where there's fat talk that's occurring. And I think it's really hard to overcome and heal from fat talk when you're engaged in those discussions even if it's in a in a really passive way Mm. and then in terms of next steps to overcome and heal from fat talk once you have those awarenesses and you can stop fat talk in its tracks then you've got a little bit of breathing space and as soon as you've got that breathing space then you can create environments around yourself, curate the environment that you're existing in so that it's not as toxic. I've heard this so many times over the years when people are trying to recover. You know, they might be at the office morning tea or out at lunch, like one person said that in the office, you can just tell, and it was like this in the 80s, you always knew people who were dieting because it was tuna and salad and there was no, I mean, now that nowadays you wouldn't find carbohydrates in that. And for me, tuna was always diet food. I don't know how anyone can eat tuna because <laughs> in the 80s, it was like tuna and cottage cheese. Yeah. But you know, you might have a morning tea at work and someone will be standing there saying, oh my God, that cake looks so good, but I better not, I'm on a diet. And you mentioned earlier about saying changing the conversation but as you said it I could feel my anxiety going through the roof and I mean I would be more than willing to say that to people because I'm a therapist and like you I've dedicated my life to advocating about this stuff but for your average person that is quite a jump to saying hey this is boring (laughs) Mm. (laughs) and I just know like people who are early on in their recovery and who aren't as outspoken as us, how would they set that boundary? How would they do that, I guess, is what I'm asking. It's a really great question. Look, I think it takes tremendous courage to be able to do that. And I think if it's if it's too difficult to do that, then it's about stepping away from the conversation or mm-hmm. perhaps changing the subject in a more subtle way. It takes a lot of courage to actually name what's happening. But because for so many people it's just normal everyday discussion that there is scope to change the the conversation relatively seamlessly. Mm. And I think the other thing that I'd suggest is for people who are early in their recovery and this is starting, the pennies are starting to drop into just how dangerous this is and Mm. how the extent to which it consumes our society is setting ourselves up so that we have alternative discourses so there's things that we can do that are much more passive or or less obvious like you know if we have friends who are constantly posting their after photos 
their diet mm-hmm. after photos mm-hmm. on Facebook or selfies where they're posing to look particularly thin. And we all sort of know those poses. Things like that that can be triggering, we can defriend someone or we can block them from our news feed so that they may not know that we're not seeing them, that we can unsubscribe from emails and Instagram or any sort of social media feeds which are unhelpful for us. Mm. And we can also have control over the more positive and more helpful messages that we might be accessing. So things like your podcast as an mm-hmm. example. Because mm-hmm. that's yeah, that that yeah. that's gonna help combat those messages. When I interviewed Carolyn Coston, which I think she said uh, it wasn't about fat talking, but she gets people to start posting their meals as a way of sort of helping. But I'm just thinking too, in term, being an advocate uh, on social media is quite a useful way of doing that too. So starting to post your own quotes and, and things from people who are focusing on health at every size and size acceptance. And so really becoming an advocate for it in quite a visible way, I find quite useful too. But even that takes a lot of courage because you have to battle that thin ideal and body shaming first yourself yeah definitely and I think as well because getting back to what we've been talking about earlier that we live in a society where everyone thinks that they're a health expert um, <laughs> based on who they follow or what they've read or what their body shape and size is that unfortunately sometimes those sorts of comments and I can think of many times where this has happened to me where you post something thinking that it will be well received and there's a backlash from people yeah, who hold dearly to their own ideas around this, which I think is perfectly normal because we all exist in bodies. We all have a relationship with food and there's going to be people who are engaging in dieting who will be defending that position or people who have internalised a thin ideal at any cost who will be defending that. So this is a really hard thing to say and perhaps to accept, but I think at times it's also worth then considering what are friendships that need to be mm. dropped. I can think of one person in particular who I ended up defriending because their views were so entrenched and their way of trying to negotiate around it was so personal and so violent really, you know, that it just, yeah. it was not a healthy sort of discussion to be part of. And this is me as someone at that, you know, a few years ago still you know, very much in the advocacy space and completely surrounded by, for the best part, people who supported what I believed, that it really was a stark reminder as to just how hard it would be for someone early on in that journey to be up against someone who's challenging and questioning and undermining. And that's really not very helpful. People might sort of be in early in recovery, maybe thinking that's a bit extreme, but actually, I mean, there's a book What's the Matter with Mary Jane, I think it's called. And it's a stage play that I think it's from the 90s and it was uh, went around a lot of schools. And if you were to read this book and the severe degree of fat talking and fat shaming and it is an act of violence against oneself, just if you were to read this, you'd think, how could someone possibly say that to themselves? And then when you think about it, oh, hang on a minute, I've actually been saying half of these things to myself my whole life. It's really, really violent towards oneself. So when we're talking about setting boundaries with other people and obviously they have a right to say something, I'm thinking to another way um, that I do it with people is through empathy. And if I hear someone fat talking now, I actually say, oh my God, I feel really sad when I hear you talk about yourself like that. That's a lovely approach. 
Yeah, I think it's hard if you're early on in your recovery because people get triggered and very angry. But certainly as time's gone by, because it, it is, it's really, really painful to hear people talking about themselves in that way. Absolutely. I guess it's a reminder of if that's what's coming out of their mouth, then goodness knows what that mm. internal is on a moment by moment basis. Mm. And so um, the other area I wanted to touch on was, you know, we know that parents who fat weight and diet talk are more likely to have daughters who use extreme weight control behaviours such as dieting, um, dieting pills, self-induced vomiting, laxatives, diuretics, binge eating. So what advice do you have for parents? The tricky thing as parents is we've all existed again in the same culture. You know, everything that we've been talking about today in terms of this being around, these issues being around for decades I think the degree is far worse now because of social media. Mm. We think about young people now, we think about cognitive dissonance and that idea of behaving in a way that's inconsistent with our, like, you know, there needs to be that discrepancy between our, mm. our values and beliefs and our behaviour for there to be change. And so to make sort of changes around this issue internally, it's been much easier, I think, for us who grew up before the age of social media Mm. for young people Mm. these days who don't have a sense of self or any of those foundations. And on top of that, living in an environment where it's completely mainstream to alter your appearance, which means through apps, filters, which means being preoccupied on parts of your body that you don't like Mm. and changing the appearance so that it is aligned to an ideal. Such dangerous behaviour. And so I think as parents, we have so much responsibility for young people in terms of the modeling that we give to them because they are not getting that from their their peers and i think from a societal perspective we've really let them let young people down in terms of the exposure to much much more subtle body shaming that's just Mm. so mainstream and so rife so i would encourage any parent to start to reflect on their own relationship with their body because it is such a dangerous thing those statistics you've just provided us mm. with that's such well well known information and I would never ever blame a parent for their child developing an eating disorder ever so I don't want to give any indication that parents are to blame but at the same time I do recognize often that kids who are struggling in these spaces that I see clinically that there might be that that's going on at home in the family and it can be really subtle things as well it can be dad kind of commenting on the pretty waitress or Mm -hmm. whistling and these sorts of things which might look like they're just part of Australian culture you know for a young person growing up in that environment then what's internalized is that thinness and beauty and being hot being sexy you know those sorts of things are what gives attention and value and worth so we all need to be reflecting on our own relationship with our bodies and also our views about fat weight and dieting and just take a moment to reflect on whether that could be having an impact on our kids and look it's easy to do you know i mean obviously i'm always on um red alert but um my husband came home from my mother's they'd been down there while I was seeing clients one day and and then um my daughter had said something like I burnt off half a Mars bar and I thought I said what I thought firstly you don't even like Mars bars so why are you <laughs> like she doesn't like yes. chocolate so apparently my husband had made some stupid comment <laughs> about how um she mama's bought an exercise bike because of you know COVID she was too scared to go out walking and whatever else so the exercise bike sitting there my daughter's got on the exercise bike they've looked at the calories burned and then my husband said oh that's half a Mars bar I said to him are you an idiot <laughs> like, come on 
<laughs> because she's already then in this one little episode linked that you do this to burn off this and it's just so easy to do. So even the best. Right, it's such a, exactly. It's such a flippant remark. We can say these things without thinking and even if we're immersed in this space on a day-to-day basis, we can find ourselves saying these sorts of things without thinking and it's really dangerous. For all young people. It is. Definitely, I think fat talk, it's easy to get caught up in um, and important to recognise the the danger of it, but also not to be scared by the fact that there's so many other things to be talking about. And it's perhaps also about for us working out what are some other things that people actually are interested, what are we interested in and starting to fill our minds and our social situations and and conversations Mm -hmm. with alternatives. There's so many parts of our personhood that we can be focused on and developing and that's ultimately what recovery is and mm. and even for those of us that don't suffer from eating and body image issues in a clinical sense, that just taking food and weight off the pedestal and sort of putting it back in the same space that every other aspect of our life is, that that can also be really powerful. Yeah, I'm thinking too. There's a book called From Fasting Saints to Anorexic Girls and they talk about it in that book around how, you know, weight, dieting, all this kind of stuff is the modern day corset for women and restriction of women. And I'm thinking, imagine if we didn't talk about weight, dieting, any of this stuff. I just wonder what we could be doing with that time and how amazing it would be. It's a really great thing to be thinking about, that that energy and that time, that Mm. money that was amassed into to something else that could do pretty amazing things. Yeah, exactly. So that sounds like a pretty good place to end. We could do pretty yes. amazing things. So if you're listening out there, you can do pretty amazing things. So Sarah, we didn't really talk very much at the beginning about, I mean, you know, we mentioned your clinic, Body Matters. And would you just tell people a little bit about your clinic and any offerings that you have Yeah, absolutely. So we are a a treatment clinic for eating and body image issues. We take a, I guess, a fairly transdiagnostic approach to treatment and certainly don't think people should be waiting until they've got an eating disorder to access treatment. So pleased that there's so many more places around that are offering treatment because I think, unfortunately, right now, the the challenge actually is for people to access services because there's still Mm. not enough in spite of the fact that there's more around and I think if anyone is thinking about accessing treatment for an eating or body image issue like I would just encourage you to pursue that journey and and do so until you find a therapist that you feel is a good fit for you and that's something that you always just know in your heart of hearts whether you feel you feel confident that that person can help you so we have a number of therapists at Body Matters the the predominantly psychologists and a couple of dietitians and we work from a health-centred framework, which we've, mm. we've talked about already today, Jody. that very much underpins the work that we do. And I'm, I'm a firm believer as well, as perhaps as hopefully has been evident through this conversation today in advocacy and the importance of us mm. advocating. And one of a uh, quote that was said to me many years ago is the standard you walk past is the standard that you set. And um, as a, a psychologist, but also as a human being, I believe that we really have a responsibility to contribute to changing culture now around the way that bodies are 
still discussed in the same way that people have advocated for other rights in mm. history. And I think it's an exciting time from that perspective that tragically there's still a lot of change that needs to be made. But positively, I think that it's really hopeful that perhaps not our children, but maybe hopefully mm. our children's children will grow up in a generation where people of all shapes and sizes are accepted mm. for who they are. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so what's your website? Yeah, our website is Body Matters Australasia, so www.bodymatters.com.au. Everyone should go and visit. There's a very good, you've got loads and loads of blog articles on there. And we were just talking beforehand that you are soon to release your own podcast. So for anyone interested, head on over to the website there. So... Thank you, Jodie. And our podcast will be very much focused on, I guess, perhaps a little bit different from what you're doing. I guess one of the things I feel like there's still a lot of space around is recovery narratives and and kind of have a voice. So I think it's quite complementary to the amazing podcast that you have where you're really deconstructing some of these sociocultural and sociopolitical issues that ours will be quite focused on understanding eating pathology. Great. So thank you so much for coming. It's so good to talk and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Jodie. For the show notes, go to the soulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions. Stop the fat talk. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.